Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today on the podcast, we have the second part of our episode on follow-up questions from our webinar on reading Revelation. Well, Scott, uh, in Chicagoland here, it's kind of snowy, isn't it? Is it snowy where you're at? Well, it hasn't started snowing yet, okay. but the um, the infallible <laughs> weather forecasters are announcing between 6 and 10 inches, and maybe some areas will get a foot of snow yeah. tonight, overnight and into tomorrow. So yeah. Chris is commuting today to Wheaton, and... Uh, She's got her uh, radar out that if it starts snowing, she's got to head home because it, it's going to get bad. And they're they're saying that the traffic could be difficult to impossible yeah. uh, to, tonight. So, yeah, it yeah. seems like for us, snow normally scatters out, but it's like concentrated <laughs> in these 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 few weeks here. But yeah. it snowed, but it didn't stop our, our taste in northern. What was that like for the um, extra students you had in your contextual theology class? Well, it was exciting. I um, I didn't know what was going to happen with Taste of Northern. I'm not involved in these kinds of plans. I'm just sort of notified that this is what's happening. Be ready. So I spent the morning gearing my class toward a group of people, who, some of whom would not have been in the class. And I was thrilled. The classroom was mostly full. The computer screen was absolutely packed with people, new faces. So I would guess that I had maybe 25 to 30 students extra uh, in my classroom. And um, I got some wonderful, wonderful letters from people uh, about the class. You know, we're looking at contextual theology. We're reading Romans 12 through 16 as a window into how context shapes the theology uh, of the book of Romans as a model of how context always shapes our theology and how it shapes the rest of the epistles in the New Testament. So it's been, uh, it was a lot of fun uh, just to sort of summarize what we've been talking about in the class on Romans so far. So uh, it was it was great, and I met a lot of people, pastors, students, young people uh, who are considering seminary, and I just hope uh, that we gave them a taste of the kind of thing that happens at Northern Seminary. And uh, the school... You know, our new facility, Chaz, is cool. It is. A friend of, it's a slick. Friend, <laughs> a friend of mine wrote the other day and said, your school is sleek. <laughs> and I thought, like, yeah, that's a good word. Yeah. Uh, it's it's modern. It's mm-hmm. got sharp edges, and it's clean and new. Everything works yeah. on, our, on our old campus. You know, it just— there was a lot of updates that needed there, to happen. There were a lot of things that needed to be done. That's correct. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah. Well, I think everybody, I'll echo that. I think everybody had a great time. I enjoyed the little part I was able to jump in on. And if you were one of those who joined us, we're so grateful to have you. And um, whether you were in that group or, or you're just considering it, as always, we're here to help in any way that we can on that journey and discern that calling that God may have on your life. So, um, 
that was that was great, and I'm sure we'll have more things like that in the future. But today we're talking about Revelation, right? And follow-up questions yes, and, yes. and things. And so I guess just to get our conversation rolling with this, I wonder if you could help set the stage by just reminding our listeners why it is so important for not just leaders, but really our whole church, um, capital C Church, to be engaging with the book of Revelation, why it's important for, for our church to read it. You know, uh, I don't, I don't, I'm not a specialist on Revelation. I have never written anything on Revelation. Well, I've probably made footnotes, you know, to Revelation. Um, but I began reading the book of Revelation when I was in high school and got into it and learned that a lot of things I was learning were, were interesting about the Bible, but probably had nothing to do with what the book of Revelation was actually about. Mm. And so, uh, I'm very interested in this book and Chaz, I got to tell you, I, I sit around listening to news at times and I think, boy, we need, we need a big dose of revelation. I, I think the book of revelation is speaking to some major issues that the church needs to hear. A friend of mine, um, told me that a major leader told him this morning, uh, someone called me and said, a uh, major leader in evangelicalism, that the debate between Kuyperians and the Anabaptists is perhaps the most important debate in the church today. Hmm. Now, that was fascinating to me yeah. because I thought in the book of Revelation, we are actually given a political theology of how to understand empire, how to understand world, how to understand culture how to understand the complicity of powers with, with the diabolical systemic injustice world and how Christians are, can be persecuted, how Christians can learn to be faithful, how Christians can learn to resist the, um, the evil of this world. And I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, you know, Christians on the progressive side and Christians on the conservative side, in in many ways, they won't admit this, mm -hmm. they really are concerned with very similar topics, and that is, uh, how can we best make this world better? Mm -hmm. Both of them are concerned with evil in the world, systemic injustices, and both of them have theories. And I think the book of Revelation casts a very steady gaze at those very same questions. And um, for that reason alone, I think that we we should be talking about the book of Revelation more. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, it's definitely an important debate. Um, in case anybody isn't familiar with those two terms of Kuyperianism and Anabaptist uh, approach, um, to and, and maybe some context, I don't want to for us to de devote the whole time. We don't have time to, to talk about it in length, but would you have some quick definitions that might be helpful if people are unfamiliar yeah. with those terms? Good catch, Chaz. I have a blog post about this topic today on Jesus Creed mm -hmm. on what makes Anabaptists most nervous about Kuyperians. But let me put it this way. Kuyperians uh, believe that God is sovereign over the whole world that Christians in the world have a responsibility to live under the sovereignty of God in whatever sphere of life they find themselves, economics, education, politics, home life, church life, etc. In each of those, they are to live under the sovereignty of God and Christ. 
And the, the Kuiperians have a desire to influence culture and society and state in the direction of the sovereignty of God in Christ. So they have a theory of uh, that, that the kingdom of God is, is huge and that Christians are to um, influence our world in the direction of what is good. Anabaptists, now I, I want you to hear how that was, was talked about. Anabaptists say what, what God is doing in this world is centered in the church and that we need to be faithful Christians in the church and demonstrate to the world an alternative way of life and that church exhibits the kingdom of God. The Anabaptists are not against Christians influencing society, state, culture, whatever, in a good direction. And Kuyperians are not interested, are, are not disinterested in church because Craig Bartholomew's book, The Contours of the Kuyperian Tradition, this book I'm blogging about on my blog right now, uh, is, is emphatic on the Kuyperian emphasis upon the church. So mm -hmm. it is, however, a, a serious disagreement on where we begin and where we think the focus of our attention should be. Yeah, and maybe even method, could you say that? Uh, in some ways, yes. The, okay. the Kuyperians are going to tend, as, as a rule, to be a little bit more activistic. Mm -hmm. And a lot of Kuyperians, even if they won't call themselves the Kuyperians, they could be Niburians, which is a more mainline version of it, H. Richard Niebuhr's mm -hmm. famous book, Christ and Culture. Yeah. Um, they they are they are more activistic on seeing the public sector as a place where they need to work in order to make society better for the church. Mm -hmm. the, the Anabaptists tend to be more passive and less concerned with making the world a better place and more concerned with striving with one another to create a fellowship that exhibits the kingdom of God as a witness to the world and calling people out of the world into the church. That's that would be uh, one way of describing. Now, I, you know, it would take hours right. to put this all together. But, <clears throat> excuse me. That would be one way of trying to compare these two. Yeah. Well, that's that's helpful foundation. And if if that's something that you're not familiar with, and even if you are, just a, that such a clear, simple definition. Appreciate that, Scott. And I'm really glad you bring it up because I think, like you said the book of Revelation and its message has um, so much to speak into that and um, guidance for us as a church. And so um, if you're all right, uh, how about I jump into the yeah, uh, additional yeah. questions that we have left here. Yeah. So Gordon asks this, he says, I'm told by many dispensationalists that understanding Daniel, the Old Testament book of Daniel, is vital to understanding Revelation. How accurate is this in comparison to the rest of Jewish thought? It's a good idea, but it's not that simple. In other words, I don't think you can say, I'll pick up the book of Daniel, I'll read it really carefully, and then I'm going to go to the book of Revelation, and I'm going to see that the book of Revelation is based upon Daniel. Yes and no. Uh, and and uh, yes in this sense. If you examine the cross-references in your Bible, if you have a cross-reference Bible, and you open up the book of Revelation and you examine it carefully, you're going to find quite a few references to the book of um, 
in the book of Revelation, echoes and allusions and mentions of the book of Daniel. So yes, uh, there there are there are clear indications that the book of Revelation is rooted in the book of Daniel. Now here's the problem. The book of Daniel didn't get published first, and then immediately thereafter we got the book of Revelation so that we now have the book of Revelation uh, using the book of Daniel. Uh, in other words, uh, when I was in Bible college at uh, Cornerstone University in Grand Rapids, Michigan, it wasn't a Bible college, it was a Christian liberal arts college, um, there were uh, there were friends of mine who were in Christian colleges across the United States who took a course called Daniel and Revelation. And so Gordon's question is is a good one, and he's right, is that the book of Daniel, in many ways, is the opening of the apocalyptic window onto the Bible. So apocalyptic literature and Daniel go hand in hand. But by the time Revelation is written, uh, Daniel had undergone all kinds of interpretations, including Jesus's understanding of Daniel chapter 9, 26 to 27 in Matthew chapter 24 or Mark 13, depending on which gospel you want to look at, and Luke 21. So uh, the book of Daniel was not just a blank book that they had to, or, or a book of lines that they had to examine in order to, for John to write the revelation. Mm -hmm. Rather, the book of Daniel was in a process of interpretation, of reimagination, reworking, reshaping, connecting to new contexts, mm -hmm. so that by the time the book of Revelation is written, Daniel has had a couple centuries of discussion and debate and reinterpretations. And so apocalyptic literature in general is rooted in the book of Daniel and connected to the book of Daniel, mm -hmm. as well as Ezekiel and Isaiah. Mm -hmm. um, and not only that, we have prophetic tradition that feeds into apocalyptic tradition in the book of Revelation. Mm -hmm. So we need to add the other prophets as well. And then we add Jesus. And then we add the Apostle Paul. And all of a sudden now we've got all kinds of stuff feeding into the book of Revelation. And John is a minister, uh, an apostle, probably in the city of Ephesus. Uh, when he is writing these letters uh, to the churches, he gets, uh, well, he got banned to the Isle of Patmos. And from Patmos, he writes this letter. So John is not uh, in a library where he can consult all these things. Mm -hmm. John is dreaming and God is speaking to him and he's thinking and pondering and learn uh, using what he has learned about the Bible. So yes, Daniel is important. The Son of Man is important. The um, mapping of nations opposed to God are important. All those things come out of the book of Daniel, and the Son of Man being victorious and presenting things before the Ancient of Days, or presenting himself before the Ancient of Days along with the people of God. This is all a part of Revelation, but it's not just Daniel, it's Daniel plus. Yeah, and I, I know I remember doing a, an assignment in my undergrad work. I took a, a course specifically just on the book of Revelation, and our teacher had us go through um, not just Daniel, but 
um, for the certain passage that we were doing our exegetical paper on, we had to um, list all of the Old Testament references. And I was blown away just by the, in my short little passage, just how many all over the Old Testament allusions that there were, connections that um, had some sort of influence or maybe at least um, soundtrack that would have been playing in the minds of uh, especially the Jewish readers of John's revelation that he writes. Yeah, and I'm sitting here looking at my Greek New Testament. The Nestle Allot Greek New Testament has a brilliant set of references, mm. cross-references in the margins, Yeah, uh, on the outside margin of each page. And it is so rich yeah. in the number of texts. And it would take hours and hours <laughs> to read the book of Revelation, uh, read a paragraph at a time, and look up each of those references. Mm -hmm. But but Bible readers could do themselves no greater service than doing just that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, our next question here, I believe it's an anonymous one, uh, but it asks, Gerald Stevens feels the way we have read Revelation has in a way decanonized it. He teaches it, it needs to be recanonized by re-emphasizing the gospel in it. In what ways is the gospel especially a King Jesus gospel. I think they threw that in there, knew you would like that. Um, in what ways is the gospel present in Revelation when it is read correctly? Okay, now this is nice. Um, this is a good question, and fundamentally I think it's a very important question, and that is, now I don't know who Gerald Stevens is, so I may be betraying ignorance here, and, I, and therefore I, do, I really don't know what Gerald Stevens means by decanonizing the book of Revelation, but he goes toward the gospel, and I think what he means then is that the way we've read the Bible is that it's no longer even connected to the way mm -hmm. uh, the New Testament sets up its message. If that's the case, I'm totally on board, and here's, here's what I'd like to say. The gospel of the New Testament is articulated in 1 Corinthians 15 as telling the story of Jesus. There's a debate is it the life, you know, he, uh, uh, Paul says that he died according to scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised according to the scriptures. Okay, so it looks like it's about the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. But if you read on all the way through verse 28, it's highly likely that Paul thinks the gospel is about the incarnation of Jesus in this world, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, his rule and his return, and his eventually conquering of all evil and handing that over to God the Father, where so God can be all in all. That's what 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 28 ultimately teaches. I think that's the gospel. If that's the gospel, no book teaches the gospel better than the book of Revelation. Yeah. It is a message about the assumed life of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus, the, and it starts with the rule of Jesus over all the world, the promise that he will return as the great white writer and conquer evil, deliver his people from suffering, systemic evil, opposition, martyrdom, uh, and and deliver everything over to God so that the new heavens and the new earth is precisely the aim of God in this world. So I, I think 
that whoever wrote this question and whatever, whatever Gerald Stevens has taught, if he's arguing that the book of Revelation needs to be taught from the angle of the gospel, he's nailed it. That is what this book is about. It's about the rule of Christ and the conquering of evil by God. So I like wow. that question. Yeah, that's a good question. And it, I, I like how you cast it too. And focusing in on the major themes that you've talked and letting those breathe and, and be the, the main thing that dominates our focus over and against the trivialities is what we've called them or the kind of distractions of um, things that oftentimes get associated with revelation. And, and I wonder if that's in part why people think, well, the gospel's not in revelation because it's all about all this other stuff that really, it, at the end of the day, if you look at it, what we believe is most accurately is not what the message that John's trying to get across at all. Yeah, you know, and, and for many people, Chaz, the gospel is about how to get saved. Exactly. Well, revelation is bigger than that because yeah. salvation is bigger than that and because the gospel's bigger than that. Okay, I've yeah. said my piece. Yeah. Okay, so follow-up question uh, uh, with that, though, is I know one of the things that um, Martin Luther in his writings was, I think the book of James and Revelation were the ones he was ready to kick out of the canon. Um, do you got any insight on that, on on why he felt that way about particularly Revelation? Well, if you, yeah, I mean, I, I haven't read uh, much about Luther on, on Revelation, nor have I studied Revelation and canon questions uh, in a way that I can offer uh, special insights, but the, the the problem with the book of Revelation, especially by the time of the Reformation, was that there were so many crazy interpretations. I mean, you think you think Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins and some of these people, Salem Kerban, uh, Hal Lindsey, you think they're crazy at times uh, with some of their interpretations. The, by the by, the middle eight, by the medieval t period and by the Reformation, a friend of mine named Rodney Peterson was talking to me about this one time, and he did his dissertation on this. Is the Book of Revelation was almost uh, it was mysterious and so bizarre for some people that they didn't know what to do with it, and uh, so so Luther had problems with it because a lot of people just didn't know what mm. to make of it. And uh, I think it was the rediscovery of apocalyptic literature that gave uh, moderns more of a handle on how to approach this. And now there's so many fine. I think if Luther was in our world today, he'd like the book of Revelation. He still would not like the book of James. Yeah. But he would like the book of Revelation today. Okay, that's good. Uh, so a more practical question here is asked by Andrew, and he asked, how do we preach the political aspect of Revelation in a culture of constant political pol polarization? Yes, the P words are on the word here. Now, political <laughs> yeah. polarization and politics and partisanship, that, this is the issue. Yeah. All right, here, here's what I think. You cannot preach the New Testament gospel without being political. You cannot preach Jesus and the kingdom of God. Could you find a more political word than kingdom, yeah. which could be translated empire? Uh, you cannot preach the Apostle Paul's message without being political. You cannot preach First Peter without it being political. 
James, you can probably get by with it because it's not as immediately obvious, but the minute James touches on wealth, which is all over the place, mm-hmm. it can get political pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And the book of Revelation especially is loaded with politics. So there is no way to be faithful to the New Testament and not be political. Furthermore, it is impossible to read the Bible from Genesis through Revelation, especially focusing on the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophets, the law of Moses, without seeing, and how about the histories? It's all about the political history of the leadership and wars and battles and laws for the people of God. It's not about individual piety and personal relationship with God. It is rather a focus upon the people of God in the world And so the Bible is from beginning to end political. So, number one, you got to admit that the Bible is political from front to back. The second thing, though, is the Bible gives Christians, Jews, uh, uh, Israel, uh, northern and southern kingdom, etc. stuff, it gives them angles on politics that transforms how we take a look. But so I want to focus as a New Testament uh, professor, on the message of Jesus, the message of Paul, the message of Peter, the message of John, and that is the politics is an upside-down politics. It is not a politics of control, coercion, violence, and the sword. It is a politics of the cross. It is a politics where Jesus, the Lord, kurios, big word in the Roman Empire, where Jesus the Lord is the ruler, but the Jesus who is the Lord is one who became the Lord by giving himself for others, Philippians 2, verses 6 through 11, so that the lamb, the servant, the cross, crucifixion, suffering, martyrdom become a significant theme in the Bible to understand the kind of Jesus we're dealing with. The third thing is this. The character of a king shapes the character of the king's kingdom. If the character of the king is one who gives himself for the sake of others, who dies and suffers in order to bring victory to his people, then we become people who reflect that king not by coercion, not by sword, not by might, not by violence, but by love and service and compassion and lifting those who are at the bottom, caring for the marginalized, and making invisible people in our culture visible because God sees them, Christ has made them visible to us, and it is our responsibility to make them visible in Christ. So, the, the big thing is, then, is that, yes, the Bible's political, but we have a different kind of politics, mm-hmm. the politics of Jesus, the politics of the cross, the politics of cruciformity, the politics of Christoformity. That is our Christian politics, and it changes everything. Now, that leads me to my last point, and it's this. The biggest mistake the church can make, the two biggest mistakes— is to depoliticize the Bible or to partisanize the Bible. In other words, if you say it's not about politics, it's just about piety, 
you fundamentally misunderstand the Bible. But if you think it's about the Republican Party or the Democratic Party, that it's about socialism, it's about social democracy, it's about conservatism, you have failed to understand the Bible. Christianity transcends those categories of left and right and partisanship. And to me, one of the biggest mistakes the church has made since the era of Ronald Reagan especially, and I see it in evangelicalism so pervasively, and that is that evangelicalism has aligned itself with the Republican Party. Um, A friend of mine named Greg Carey tells me, and he's accurate on this, I've often said the main line aligned itself with the Democratic Party. And he said, not so. Many mainliners, and I think he even told me that probably 50% of mainliners are Republicans as well. So if that's the case, then uh, evangelicalism has overdone its partisanship. The main line in many of its leaders is has overdone its alignment with the Democratic Party, but the church as a whole needs to repent. And if, and if uh, John were here today, John would look at the church and he would say, you have compromised the gospel by your partisan politics, and as a result, you have failed the politics of the cross. Yeah, that's definitely, uh, it's challenging, yet it's, at the end of the day, it's good news to live under Jesus' reign yeah, as you've laid yeah, out there. Exactly and, right. and that's what, you know, from a preaching standpoint and a proclaiming, we proclaim good news, and I think what you've shared at the end of the day, ultimately, is good news. Um, well, one last question then to kind of, I think this one does a really good job of um, jumping off of that and wrapping up all the different things that we've talked about. And it's from Edward, and he asks, with regard to our response in reading Revelation, um, particularly your sixth theme about wisdom, could wisdom also be a response of God's people? He who has has ears, is used multiple times, and seems to call people to hear what the Spirit is saying. Yes, um, we don't often connect apocalyptic literature with wisdom. Wisdom seems to be kind of calm and intelligent and sophisticated and based upon experience. This is the way many people talk about wisdom in the Bible and in the Jewish tradition. And, and it's, it's not that simple. It's not like there were wise people wearing green shirts and apocalyptic people wearing bright red shirts and law people wearing um, striped shirts with, you know, white shirts with blue stripes. And it's not like that. It's that way. All these things mixed together. So the book of Revelation's response, let the let the reader he, see or, or hear uh, he who has ears. This is pastoral wisdom from John to people, to, and he's saying to his listeners, to the seven churches of Western Asia Minor, listen to what this says. Listen to what the Spirit is saying to you. It is time to devote yourselves utterly to faithfulness to God, to realize that these are difficult days, and that you may be going through persecution, but you know that Jesus is the Lord, and he is going to bring victory uh, for God's people in the world. So I, I think wisdom uh, touches upon the book of Revelation, and it is, um, it is the, in, in a sense, it's the way we have to learn to listen to what the book of Revelation is all about.
right. That's good. Well, thanks for um, being so great to let me throw these questions at you. I'm sure everybody who fun. didn't get the questions on the webinar appreciated hearing them in um, this format. And um, so to wrap everything up, any final closing thoughts to send everybody away with? Um, you know, this is one of my um, life's themes. Keep focusing on the big picture. Don't get lost in the details so much that you lose the big picture. This book is about evil being conquered by God in Christ, the people of God needing to be faithful, and the promise that faithfulness will be rewarded with the new heavens and the new earth. And keep preaching the gospel as as a message that runs right through the book of Revelation. So, you know, that that's the way I would, I, I, I always want to say, keep the big picture clear. Absolutely. Great words to send us away with. So thank you, Scott, and thank you, our listeners, for joining us as always. If you haven't had a chance to subscribe from whatever platform you get your podcast from, we'd love to have you do that. or Leave us a rating and review. That really helps us out as well, uh, just to gain awareness of the, the podcast and let us know some of the things you're enjoying or maybe we could improve on. So um, thanks again for joining, and we look forward to be with you next time as we continue our conversation on how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. 